So today we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, we're going to be spending the next few weeks and months uh, all the way throughout the summer looking at the gospel of, of Mark. And we're, we really want to consider who the, the real, real Jesus is. And Mark is just one of these uh, gospels, one of these biographies in the New Testament that tell us who Jesus is. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, there's John. And each one of these gospels have a different emphasis as uh, these writers, as these um, apostles teach us who Jesus is. And Mark, very specifically, as we begin to think about who Mark is, perhaps you're very familiar with the Gospels and you know who the 12 disciples are. And you're like, wait, Mark's not even on that list. Who is Mark? How is he connected to Jesus? But Mark, we, we actually first encounter Mark for the very first time in the book of Acts. Mark is a missionary companion to the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. In fact, uh, there's a, there comes a, a moment of conflict in the, on their very first missionary journey that Paul has. And basically, Paul and Barnabas, they split, they part ways because uh, John Mark has just been a big disappointment to Paul. And Barnabas is like, give the guy another chance. And that's Mark. But we see Mark uh, return later on. Uh, Paul says, hey, send, like, send Mark to me. He is useful in the ministry. And so we see a level of restoration there. But we even see Mark later on in 1 Peter. Because what we find is that Mark ha eventually uh, emerged as like the secretary or the assistant pastor, if you would, to the apostle Peter. And so here is Mark. He's writing this gospel account. He, is, he knows... Uh, the, like one of Jesus' best friends in Peter, and he is writing this gospel for us. And one of the things that, as we'll look at Mark, is that it is a very brief story, moving from scene to scene, episode to episode, in a shotgun fashion, just very quick, and very, it's a very, it has a very rapid pace. And we'll see that today as we dive into this text. And what the entire picture of Mark's gospel is that Jesus is the king, but he is also the one who is a suffering servant. He both wears a cross and a crown. And so the, the title for this entire sermon series is The Cross and the Crown. And so we're going to be learning about who Jesus is by looking at this entire gospel over the next few weeks. So let's just give our careful attention to the reading of God's word now. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And you can follow along in your worship guide or on the, the walls beside me. Here's God's, here is God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the, in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country... And, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be with us now by your word and by your spirit to work in our lives, that we would see uh, what it means to walk with you and to follow you with our entire lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The story goes, in December of 1903, after many attempts, the two Wright brothers were successful in getting their flying machine off the ground. So they were, they were so thrilled, they were so ecstatic, they were so happy, they just had to share this incredible news with someone. So they ran home and they sent a telegraph to their sister, Catherine. And the telegraph read this, we have actually flown 120 feet and we will be home for Christmas. So Catherine, their sister, she hurried, she, she ran to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the, the message. She, she, showed them, they showed, she showed him the telegraph, and he glanced at it. He said, how nice. Your brothers will be home for Christmas. He totally missed the big news that mankind had actually flown. The headline, the headline in the paper that day had, no, had nothing to do with this incredible invention. Instead, it had to do with the crowded stores for Christmas shopping. It had nothing to do with the invention that defined the century. So here he missed the, the big news that would go on to shape the, the 20th century. And here, as we come to the Gospel of Mark, Mark is introducing Jesus for us. He's introducing the real Jesus for us. And in this text that we read, we see episode after episode, we meet John, Jesus' cousin, who's baptizing, baptizing all of Judea and Jerusalem. We meet him. We see Jesus being baptized. We see Jesus being drove out to the wilderness. And then we see Jesus uh, beginning his ministry, saying, the time is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's easy that as we see this rapid movement through this gospel, we miss the big news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. That is the big news. And that is the, what I want us to lean into today as we look at this text, as we look at this passage, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so that is the big news that we cannot miss. So what is it that we learn about Jesus from this text? What is it that we learn about Jesus? And so as we consider who Jesus is, we're, we're, we'll, I want us to explore what it means for Jesus to be called the Christ. I want us to think about what it means to say that the king has come. I want us to think about what it means that for Jesus to be the son of God. And so our first point, as we even begin to unpack who the real Jesus is, is the first point for, for today is the king has come. And 
It's very, just very recently, as we just celebrated Good Friday and Easter Sunday, just uh, a week and then uh, like nine days ago, if you were with us, I, sh- I shared two very startling statements that at the center of the Christian faith is the crucifixion, at the center of the Christian faith is the resurrection. But the truth is that the crucifixion nor the resurrection have any significance, nor do they matter it without what is called the incarnation. The incarnation. The incarnation is the fact that God became man, that God came into flesh. And this is a mind-blowing truth for us to say that the creator became part of the creation. That the son of God took on human nature without losing a single ounce of his divinity. That the son of God became man. So as we look at Jesus Christ, he is Fully God and fully man. He is fully God and fully man at the same time. And this is the reason, the incarnation is the reason why we can say that God is with us. Because the incarnation means that God is identifying with us. But just to step back to how mind-blowing this is. Here's writer Peter Larson. He he captures why this is mind-blowing, but also why it's incredibly awesome. He wrote, despite our efforts to keep God out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door that's marked no entrance. And he left through a door marked no exit. See, the incarnation is incredible. It's impossible by how we think of our world and how we think about reality. But when we believe that God, and this is true of the Christian faith, that God loves this world, he loves his creation, he is active and involved in it, he has made it, that God is in fact the, the God of the impossible. So when we believe that about God, the incarnation just makes sense because God is the God of the impossible. And so as we, be, as one of the first things that we learn about Jesus here as he, is that he is called the Christ. The Christ. Let me just look at this word for a moment. Because like Christ, like you may, we always see Jesus and Christ going together um, in Scripture. It's like a first name and last name, but that's not it whatsoever. Christ is a title. It is the Greek t- uh, word for anointed one. In the Old Testament, we would see it as Messiah. And so Jesus is being called the anointed one immediately from, from Mark's mouth. And so this is actually a word, like Messiah in the Old Testament, Christ in the New Testament. It's a word that actually was full of expectations. Any Jew would hear these words and they would say, hey, we, we know who you're talking about. Or we at the very least have expectations for how the Messiah or how the Christ should live and work and what he's coming to do. And Mark goes actually straight to those expectations. He says, as it is written in the prophet uh, Isaiah, and he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He is, he is quoting Isaiah 40, which we read about in our call to confession. But I want to read a bit further. Like our call to confession included verse 3, 
A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But here's four and here's five. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be laid, made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, right here, as we begin to, to think about Jesus, he is called a king. He is called the anointed one. That's how Jews would think about anyone who's called the Christ. Is that, that, hey, he's God's anointed one. He is God's anointed king. He is coming to fulfill all these promises that God made to David and Abraham and our, our forefathers. And so as Jesus is a king, this is where we start here. Because in ancient times, there was no, just to state the obvious, in, in antiquity, like when the pyramids w- were made, there were no tractors, there were no semis, there were nothing like that. How the pyramids were built were through slaves. And if, and in times of ancient Rome, for someone to make a road, it would take an, an army, which is how Rome made their roads. But when they came to a mountain, you would go around the mountain. When this, these Road workers would come to a canyon, they would zigzag down the canyon, they would zigzag back up the other side of the canyon. That's how you would make roads. And so the, ch- the challenge that Mark is saying here is that, like, hey, the king is coming, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If anyone would hear this, they would say, oh, great, another king's coming. This is going to be a burden. And this is actually how we react. This is our first and our initial response to the fact that Jesus would be our king. It's like, you know what? I don't want a king. Instead, I want to be the, my own boss. Like, how many times do we think that? Like, when, so, when we go to work and our bosses tell us something to do, and we're like, life would just be so much easier without a boss. How many of us think that? We want to be the, really the center of our universe. We want to be our own kings. We want to really be, uh, be the, our own master of our fates. That's how we think about our lives. But the reality is Jesus is the king over everything because he's the creator over everything. He's also the redeemer over everything. But here's one f- side note that, like, seriously, everybody would probably miss it unless you're a professional scholar who reads the original languages in, in Mark, and that's your entire day job. And those scholars are the folks who I get to spend some of my time with as I'm researching, preparing for sermons. And one scholar points this out, that every single time that Mark uses the word road, he, it's going to the road, it's going to the cross. And so as Jesus says, prepare the way for the Lord, Mark is saying, let's go straight to the cross. Every single time this word comes up, it's, we, we see Jesus walking to, moving to the cross. And this is actually where this should be incredibly encouraging and comforting to us because Jesus is not coming to be a, a dictator or a, an unloving king. No, Jesus actually comes to die upon the cross for our sins. And even as we read about this, we see uh, how Jesus is coming. And this is one of the expectations that people had of the Messiah, of the Christ, is that, is here in, um, turning the page, sorry, is here, that every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground would become level. And what we see is, is like, this is actually in the context of verse 2. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, cry to her that her warfare has ended. Her sin is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The idea is that here is Jesus Christ who is coming to defeat your sin. Here is Jesus who has come to defeat your guilt. Who is Jesus who has come to defeat evil? And there's going to be no nook, no cranny, no shadow of a mountain, no place in a canyon that can hide from Jesus' redemptive purpose. That is one of the expectations that people had of the Messiah. And Mark's saying, the king has finally come. That is Jesus Christ. And as Mark says, let's prepare the road for him. It's going straight to the cross. And so we see that the king is coming to die upon the cross. And so how is he going to do that? How is Jesus going to defeat our sin? How is he going to defeat our guilt? How is he going to defeat evil for us? And the surprise is the fact that he, it has to do with the incarnation, that he is fully God and fully man. But how is he going to do that? And this brings us to our second point. First point is the king is coming. The second point is the king gets dirty. And this, is, uh, this actually gets us to his baptism. And we see Jesus' baptism in verses 4 through 11. And immediately as we begin to think about this baptism, Mark introduces us to Jesus' cousin, John. And, and John has a prophetic role in Jesus' mission. He's like a, a herald to the king. The king is coming, so the heralds would go in front of him and say, hey, guys, the king is coming. That's what John's mission and his purpose is. And so he is serving as his herald. He's calling people to repentance. He's telling them that you're not right with God, so you, you need something to change in your life. That's what John is saying. And so he is the promised voice out in the wilderness. And so we find in verse 5 that Jews from Judea and Jerusalem are coming out to him, and they're being baptized. And as John is telling them, hey, confess your sins, repent, be baptized, like this language that I'm using is very churchy language. Repent. That's not really how we talk today. In fact, if, you see, if we see the word repent in our pop culture, it's going to be on, like a, on a billboard on a highway or an interstate when you drive by or on like a, a sign. So what does this language mean? Because if you have grown up in the church and you're a religious person, this is very familiar language to you. But if you're here today and, you, and like you've never stepped inside a church before, you've never really re- heard any of these things before, this is brand new language. And so, like, what's going on? So simply put, like, what's going on is John is pointing out that we are a sinful people. We are a broken people. And so the word repent simply means that we have to change. Like, it's, it's where, like, hey, there has to be, like, a 180-degree turn in your life. You have to turn things around. And so John is pointing out that we aren't right with God. That's the fundamental problem of our life. And so... And so as what we see, and this is where this gets really confusing about this, here's Jesus being baptized. And the reason why that's confusing is because Jesus is called sinless. That we read in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, that Jesus uh, was tempted and with us, like, he's tempted like us in every way that we have been, yet without sin. Jesus is described as the pure righteousness of God, that he had no sin. So why in the world is Jesus being baptized? Why is he taking on this baptism when he has no sin to confess, when he has no sin to, to reveal to God and repent of? What's going on here? Well, it has to do with the fact that he is sinless and we are sinners. 
as we read about in Romans that like we have been baptized when we have been baptized we have been identified with Christ what's going on here is that when Jesus is being baptized he is identifying with our sin that's what's going on he is coming saying like I am coming to identify with the sin of my people and so he is receiving Jesus' baptism to symbolize why he comes. He comes to identify with us. He comes to identify with our sin. And one scholar suggests that there's something else going on here. Once Peter Lehart's the scholar, and he's pointing out that priests in the Old Testament, they're anointed with oil. And this is serving as Jesus' priestly anointing with water. So what this means is that Jesus is being anointed, anointed as a priest, and his purpose is to die upon the cross for our sins, to identify with us and, and die for our sins. And so he's identifying with us in every part of our humanity so that every part of our humanity would be rescued and redeemed by Jesus. That's what's going on. And so one writer, Henry Nouwen, he had a thought that had that really drives home what Jesus is doing. He writes that none of us can help anyone without becoming involved, without entering with our whole person into the painful situation, with taking the risk of becoming hurt, wounded, or even destroyed in the process. So Jesus is here being baptized, identifying with us. He is showing us what is going to happen to him. Because he is identifying with our sin. He's identifying with us and he's identifying with our sin. And so Jesus knowingly embraces his mission. He knowingly embraces why he came. Why he took on flesh. Because he, he is going to suffer for our sake. And that's what's going on when he's baptized. He is identifying with us. And then, but here's something that's truly remarkable. As Jesus is doing this. Something remarkable happens. And we read this in verses 10 and verse 9. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being opened, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, You are my Son, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What we see is that the triune God is looking at Jesus in this moment and is pleased in what he is coming to do. That God delights in Jesus and what he is doing. And theologians uh, describe something, describe God as the Trinity. And uh, this text is, is, a, is one of the texts that if anyone asks you, hey, where do you see the Trinity in the Bible? This is one of the texts that you go to. And the Trinity is a mystery, just like the idea that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. It's, they're both mysterious. They're, they're, they're both comprehensible but also incomprehensible at the same time and so as we th think i want to think about this for a moment because like what is the trinity uh, and the, the, the reality is that when we think about god there's god the father god the son god the holy spirit there's three persons yet what we find within scripture is that there's one god so the trinity is a word a theological word that theologians use to to describe god three persons one god that they are the the godhead is equal, those three persons are equal, yet they are separate. No, excuse me, they're not separate. Big word, big word mistake. Three, three persons, one God, equal, but distinct. 
They're, they're together. They cannot be separated. That is the, the trinity. And so what we read in Deuteronomy 6.5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, three in one. That's our triune God. And so the, the significance of this in the moment of Jesus' baptism is that we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit committed to your rescue, committed to, the, to rescuing you, and, I, and, I de- to, I, and committed to the Son identifying with your sin. That's what's going on here. And so one writer She wrote, the incarnation should not be understood as the divine benediction on all that is. It was an incarnation unto the cross. And and the author's point is that Jesus came to die upon the cross. And so here in this baptism, when we see the father delighting in, in his son and approving of his son's mission and the spirit empowering him unto his mission, we see God committed to rescuing us through Jesus' death upon the cross. So we see that the coming king comes to get dirty. But then he goes into the wilderness, and our third point is the king's testing. And this is another text that is surprising and shocking. And one thing that we find in Mark's gospel, there is so much happening in short little time that there's a lot of surprising moments and, what we, and the, what's surprising to us is in verse 12. Immediately after being baptized, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And so Mark only spends two verses on the entire temptation of Jesus, but Matthew devotes like a significant part of chapter, Matthew chapter 4. Luke does the same to the subject of Jesus' temptation. And so Mark just highlights that it's the Spirit driving him out into the wilderness where there is many wild animals, where he is being tested by Satan, and, and yet he is being ministered to by angels. So as we look at this, I want to point out that metaphorically, like actually just back up, the, the wilderness is not a pleasant place to be whatsoever. And yet, in our lives, metaphorically, we often find ourselves in a place of wilderness. And, it, and so perhaps you are here today and you are confused. You have doubts. You, have, you find your heart being full of unbelief, and so you're confused. Or perhaps you're here today and you feel tired and worn out because you're battling a certain sin or temptation in your life. And to you, I would say that you're in a wilderness season in your life. That is something that... Uh, should be a source of comfort to you because we even see Jesus in the wilderness as well. And one of the things that, like, just taking a step back, actually, like, as you, and, and if you're in the wilderness season of your life, the, the absolute worst thing that you can do in that season is just give up, to despair. That's the absolute worst thing that you could do in the wilderness Because the biblical reality is that God's family is a wilderness people. And what I mean by that, look in the Old Testament. Uh, We see God rescuing Israel from physical slavery in Egypt. And he takes them immediately through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai into the wilderness where they were there for 40 years. And so God's people are a wilderness people. We should be familiar with seasons of being in the wilderness in our lives. 
But what we see about this passage, what we learn about our king, is that our king is a wilderness king as well. He has been in the wilderness. He has been tempted. He has been tried. He has been tested for our salvation. And so because of what Jesus has gone through, we are able to look at Jesus and say that he has been tempted. He has been tried. He has been tested in every way that we have, yet he is without sin. We're able to look at Jesus and to see that he identifies with us, that he stands with us. He has solidarity with us. And so the, the, re, the reality is, is that as Jesus is actually being led by the Spirit to face temptation, he's, be, he's being tempted by his adversary, our adversary, the devil. And as he's been going out to the wilderness, the truth is that like he's going out there. And here's Satan, and you see this very clearly in, in Matthew 4. Satan's coming at Jesus with everything he's got, and he has this hostile intent to kill Jesus. He has this hostile intent to trap Jesus. And that's actually what Satan does with us as well. That when we are in moments of temptation, Satan's coming at us to destroy us and to kill us. But the reality is, is what we see in Jesus is that Jesus can defeat temptation where it is a season, where in other words, this wilderness season is not a season where we are destroyed. It's actually a season where we are tested and we are actually, we actually know that God is with us and that God is for us, that God is actually able to be relied upon at every challenge that we encounter. That's what Jesus experiences firsthand as he goes out into the wilderness, and as we are a wilderness people, as God is, as our king is a wilderness king, this is what we are meant to be able to say as well when we face temptation. So that we are facing temptation, uh, and we should look at that as the, the opportunity to discover that God's grace, that God's love, that God's presence is greater than our sin as well, and that God's grace is greater than our than facing this temptation. And so if we pull all this together, not only do we see that God is committed to our salvation, but we actually be, see who the real Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the son of God. He is the king who is going to make all things right. And he achieved your salvation. He achieved our salvation by dying for you upon the cross. And so here's my question. Here's my question for you. How can you live with this reality? The reality is that God became man. The creator became the creation. One writer used it very poetic language. The hurricane became a man. The fire has become flesh. That life itself became life and walked among us. How do we think about that? How does that fact of the incarnation change and shape our lives? Because Christianity either means that God became man and died for us and defeated death for us. Christianity either means that or it is pure nonsense. It's either the most awesome, mind-blowing reality of all time, or it's a lie. That's it. There's no room for apathy in the, 
There's no room for apathy. Jesus is either our king or he, this is sheer fiction. And so Jesus at the very end answers us, answers this question of how we should live in light of this fact. He says, repent. The time, the time now is complete. The time now is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, friends, the king has come to make things right. The king has come to make us right with God and to enjoy life with him. Life with God is meant to be liberating. And, and when Jesus is our king, life with him is liberating. It is freeing. It is not enslaving whatsoever. It is not restricting. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is that the Son of God came to die for you. And what this entire passage means is that Jesus looks at you. And he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of your sin. He's not scared of you. He's not scared of your doubts. He's not scared of anything about you. Instead, he says, I want, I'm coming. I'm going to be, I want, and I want to be your friend. And I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to identify with you. In fact, I'm going to die upon the cross for you. That's who Jesus is. That's the king that he is. So the question is, will you give him your life? and see where that type of love takes you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love that you have shown for us in your son's life and death upon the cross. We, thank, we ask that in the coming uh, weeks uh, and days ahead that you'll be at work in our life, that as we look at this entire gospel, that we would discover what, who the real Jesus is and see, his, see your amazing love for us. So, Father, we ask in the coming weeks that your spirit would be at work in our life and our hearts, that we would see you, that we would also confess our sin and walk with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.